morning. My name is Russ and welcome to Catalyst Ministries. I'm here in my office in North Seattle and it's my honor this morning to share from the Word of God with you. Um, in February, my wife and I took a vacation to Maui and it was really a vacation of a lifetime. We had an amazing time together. You would never have known that anything was going on in the world. It was a fantastic time. But when we boarded the plane and flew out of Hawaii and then landed five and a half hours later in Seattle, it was if, as if we literally flew into a different galaxy. The world had changed. Seattle was completely different. We flew into what we now know as the pandemic. And our world has been turned upside down in many ways. And we are living in a world filled with fear. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine wrote an article entitled, Why We're Living in the Age of Fear, and was answering this question, why are we all so afraid? And they commented and said this, we are a society choked in fear and are living in the most fear-mongering time in human history. And I don't think that's far from the truth. Of all the comments that I received after last week's teaching entitled Society Unhinged, What to Do When It Seems Like Everything is Falling Apart, the most common comments had to do with filtering voices of fear. They had to do with anxiety over what is going on in the world. And so I have determined in the next couple weeks to tackle this issue of fear head on. I want to answer the question, what does God's word say about fear? How do we approach fear? How do we think about fear? And what does God's word say about it? And so I'm going to tackle those questions in the next couple of weeks from the Word of God. If you have your Bible, grab it and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to walk through a passage that I think is one of the more powerful passages addressing this issue of fear. But before we do, I want to frame this talk with a couple thoughts, and that those are these. Scripture gives three caricatures of Satan, the devil. Number one, he initially described Satan as a hissing serpent, as the crafty serpent, the one who hisses his deceitful messages and craftily manipulates thoughts and belief systems. And the first time we see him, he is at work instilling doubt into the mind of Eve about the goodness and the kindness and the trustworthiness of God. Now, what happens when he does this? Encapsulated within this small kernel of doubt is fear. So we see fear showing up in chapter 3 of Genesis. Specifically, the fear of missing out, or what we know in our culture as FOMO. Very common, but it's not unique to our culture. We find it back in Genesis chapter 3, the fear of missing out. What was the outcome? Mistrust, deception, suspicion, division, separation, antagonism, blame shifting, finger pointing, victim mentality, the devil made me do it, and ultimately physical death because God had to kill an animal to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. 
Do any of those results resemble our own culture? I think so. A second picture of the enemy that we see is in 1 Peter 5.8. It says this, Peter is exhorting us as believers, be sober, be vigilant, be on the alert, be on the lookout for your adversary, the devil, is prowling about like a roaring lion. Not a hissing serpent in this case, but a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Not an inconspicuous voice, but a roar, a thunderous voice. And fear is instilled into us in small increments or massive increments. (laughs) And a lion's roar is said to be so loud you can hear it five miles away. It strikes terror into the hearts of its prey. And so the devil is our adversary, but he not only manipulates in small ways, but in major catastrophes, striking fear into our hearts. The third picture that we see of him is in Revelation 12, 12, and we see him portrayed as the great dragon. Isn't it interesting? In all of time and history, a snake, a lion, and a dragon are three of the most terrifying Uh, creatures that man has encountered, and the enemy is portrayed as all three. But we see a voice in heaven declaring this about the great dragon. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. What is his emotional state? What What is his mindset? Here are a couple thoughts. Frantic, desperate, panicked, frenetic, murderous, and driven by rage. That characterizes our enemy. He knows that he can't steal our souls and win the war. But he can debilitate us with fear, steal our joy, kill our courage, and destroy our testimony or our influence. And if he does that, he's won a great battle. So today, my intent is to basically declare that is not going to happen. Brothers and sisters, we're going to stand up. We're going to grab the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We're going to find out what God has to say. We're going to allow truth to inform us and to inspire us and to encourage us. Fair enough? Let's do this. So grab your Bible and let's jump into 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And I've got four thoughts that I want to share with you as we go through this passage that deal with fear. So 2 Chronicles 20. Now let me give you the background. This is the story of King Jehoshaphat, a great king, one of the best kings in the history of the the Israeli nation. A godly king, a powerful king. He had had great victories in the early part of his life, a major setback in the middle of his life, but had rebounded, repented, come back to the Lord, and was thriving when what happens in chapter 20, as we will read, takes place. So that is a bit of the history. We're going to walk through his life and look at a situation and a scenario in his own life that involved an intense amount of fear. So I'll read the first five verses to get us started. It says, now it came about after this that the sons of Moab, the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites, three nations, three kings, three kingdoms, three armies united, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. 
Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, En Gedi. If any of you know the, the uh, geography of Israel, that's in the very south part of Israel, in the desert, near the Dead Sea. And I just want to pause and say, you know, there are, fear doesn't announce itself. Life was going well for King Jehoshaphat. He went to bed the night before, likely just reveling in the goodness and the blessing of God. And the next morning he gets a report, three armies are coming against you. That is the way fear interacts with us. It doesn't announce itself so often. It's something that shocks and surprises us many times. It comes unexpectedly, does it not? So here's what happens when he receives this report. Jehoshaphat, it says, was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. So that's the setting. Three armies, a coalition of warriors coming to wipe out Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat hears the report. Fear strikes into his heart and he turns his attention to seek the Lord. Let's get some truth out of this. What do we see in this passage? Here is the first thing I want to point out, and that is this. It says Jehoshaphat was afraid. Why was he afraid? He was afraid because of a report. A report that came to him about the danger coming towards him. Fear comes primarily through words, reports. And I don't know of a time in our history when we have more access to reports than ever than, than right now. Used to be you would turn on your television and you would get the nightly news. Now we have pings and alerts and buzzes coming through our phones all the time. We have news the moment it happens. We are being bombarded with reports. And Jehoshaphat got a report that struck fear into his heart. But here is the truth we grab hold of and get this. Truth number one, a report of fear is inevitable. It's going to come. A feeling of fear is probable. That is part of humanity and being human. We're going to get a report. We're likely going to initially at least feel fearful. We're going to have an emotion of fear. But a spirit of fear is optional. Let me say that again. A report of fear is inevitable. You're going to have them. They're going to come. A feeling of fear is probable. That's our humanity. That's our humanness. But a spirit of fear, receiving a spirit of fear is optional. Let me tell you how that works. Second Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 declares this. You have not been given a spirit of fear. Given a spirit of fear. But of power, of love, and of a sound mind. If you are experiencing fear, if it is something that is controlling you, that word spirit 
Paul says you have not been given a spirit of fear. What does that mean? A disposition or influence that rules or governs your inner person. If there is fear, if there is terror, if there is anxiety that is ruling your inner person and it is changing your disposition, it is influencing the way that you act, you think, that didn't come from God. You did not receive that from God. And Paul is declaring this. You didn't receive, you've not been given a spirit of fear. Timothy, who Paul is speaking to, a young pastor, had likely heard a report of some sort and allowed it to go past his eyes and ears and down into his inner person, and it was impacting him. And Paul is calling him out and saying, that wasn't given to you by God. God gave you power and love and a sound mind, Timothy. This spirit of fear was not given to you by God. In Matthew chapter 24, 3 through 6, we see a very interesting conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Right before Jesus goes to the cross, they're having this, this uh, conversation with him and asking him, Lord, when will the end of the age come? When are the end of times? And Jesus begins to share with them some details about the end of times. And in verse 4 of chapter 24 of the book of Matthew, he says this, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead you. This is a sidebar, but I want to say this. Not long ago, I did a study throughout scripture of the whole con concept and um, studied the whole, whole concept of deception, particularly in the end times. And what I found is that one of the major characteristic, characteristics of the last days, the Bible teaches, is massive deception, misleading, food for thought. But Jesus says this in verse 6, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Let me dissect this verse word by word. He says, you will be hearing about wars and rumors of wars. What does that mean? Hearing means finding out, being made aware of, learning about. Wars definitely involves battles, because he talks about that in verse 7, nations will rise up against nation, but it also means Conflicts, strifes, quarrels, and disputes. In Luke, he includes the word commotions. He says, you'll be hearing about wars and commotions. What does that mean? Instability, disorder, disturbance, and confusion is what the Greek language means by commotions. And then he says, not only will you be hearing about them, but you'll be hearing rumors about them. That word literally means reporting, reports. So what is Jesus saying? At the end of times, we're going to be learning about and hearing reporting or reports of conflict, strife, instability, disorder, disturbance, and confusion. Sound familiar? But his response, Jesus goes on to say, see to it that you are not frightened by these things. The word see or see to it 
has two aspects to it in the Greek, and I'll try to make this as simple as I can. It's in the active voice, which means this. You can control the input of these reports. See to it that they don't frighten you. In other words, you don't have to be a victim of these reports. Take care that they don't frighten you. In the book of John, Jesus says to his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. See to it that you are not frightened. Frightened means troubled in your mind, alarmed, astonished, shocked, or agitated with fear. What is Jesus saying? He's saying you're going to hear reports about all these very troubling things, but you don't have to let them trouble you. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live as a victim to these reports. Back to the original point. A report of fear is inevitable. Jesus said it would be. A feeling of fear is probable. That's part of being human. But to let it sink down in your spirit and control your disposition is an option. And Jesus not only gave us the, said to see to it, it was in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. Jesus is commanding us, do not become a victim to all the reports. If he commands it, it can be done. You do not have to receive a spirit of fear that begins to take over the inside of you, your inner person. That's good news. I speak that to you as a word of hope. Reports are going to come. It's inevitable. You're going to feel fear probably at least momentarily because you're human. But you don't have to receive a spirit that begins to take over your insides and control your disposition. Awesome. Amen. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. In other words, what you allow in impacts what comes out. What comes in your eyes and your ear gate will flow out of you as behavior, will flow out of you as an influencing force. Guard your heart, your eyes, your ears. There are times, brothers and sisters, where we're, where a message or a report is going to get in and we're going to feel that fear. And we're going to need to be able to stand up and say, I hear you, but I don't receive you. I hear you, but I don't receive you. You will not take control of my spirit. And we have got to command our soul. Like David said, why are you downcast, O my soul? David spoke from his spirit to his soul and took authority over what was going on inside of him. We're going to have to do that as believers in this world filled with rumors of wars and reports that cause our hearts potentially to be troubled. Jesus says, don't let it do it. Don't be frightened. See to it. And we're going to have to command and make declarations over ourselves. I hear you, rumor, but I do not receive you. You will not control my inner person, my disposition. A report of fear is inevitable. A feeling of fear is probable. But a spirit of fear is optional. It doesn't have to lodge inside of our inner person. All right, let's move on. Number two, 
it says that Jehoshaphat was afraid, but he turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judea. Here's truth number two. Your preparation before the crisis, before the fear, will determine your performance when it comes in the crisis. Your preparation before the crisis will determine your performance in the crisis. Let me say it to you another way. I don't rise to the occasion. I fall to the level of my preparation. It's a misnomer that circumstances make a person. Circumstances reveal a person. Let me give you an illustration. We love drinking tea in our family, and we have a drawer that is filled with tea, and I'm not a tea connoisseur, so when I look in that drawer, it's just confusing. It's just massive amounts of tea. If I want to know what kind of tea it is, I have to heat water and put that tea bag into the hot water. When I put the tea bag into the hot water, I find out what that tea bag is. Is it Bengal spice? Is it uh, Earl Grey? What is it? The hot water doesn't make the tea. The hot water exposes the tea, reveals the tea. And in this story with King Jehoshaphat, the hot water that he was in exposed him and exposed him beautifully because instead of succumbing to the spirit of fear, it says he turned his attention to seek the Lord. Let me ask you, we talked about it last week. You're going to have voices that tell you, flee to the mountains. You're going to have voices that encourage you to look to all sorts of things for your security. What is your first impulse when you feel fear? When you feel your security slipping away or being compromised? When you feel control slipping away from you? What is your first impulse? For Jehoshaphat, he turned his attention to seek the Lord. Now, this was not natural. It is not our natural impulse to seek the Lord. But he had trained himself beforehand. Go to chapter 17. This gives us some background of the heart and mind and spirit of Jehoshaphat. It says in 17 verse 3, a snapshot of his spiritual life, of his walk with God, of the way he had cultivated his relationship with God. It says this, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days. So he he was looking back down history, and David, King David, was an example for him. Someone whose heart after God he followed, he emulated. And it says he did not seek the Baals, the idols, the idol gods of the, of the foreign nations, as many kings had. Jehoshaphat didn't. It says, but he sought the God of his father. He followed God's commandments and did not act as Israel did. That was the northern kingdom that literally did not have a single good king in its whole history. Every single king in the, his, in the nation of Israel led the people into idol worship and ultimately slavery and bondage. But it says, so the Lord in verse 5 established Jehoshaphat's kingdom in his control, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. And here's my favorite verse. It says, 
and he took great pride in the ways of the Lord and again removed the high places and the ashram from Judah. In another version, it says this, he was courageous in the ways of the Lord. He was not a Sunday Christian. His Bible wasn't collecting dust on the shelf. He was actively pursuing a relationship with God. He was courageous in the ways of the Lord. Can you say that about yourself? Oh man, I want to be able to say, I am courageous in the ways of the Lord. Because friends, when you are courageous in the ways of the Lord, when fear comes, you might feel it, but you will turn your attention to seek the Lord. My prayer for you as I teach right now, I don't know who you are, where you are, what's going on in your life, but my prayer for you is that simple statement that you will be courageous in the ways of the Lord. Because if you are, if you will cultivate a knowledge of God, a relationship with God, if you'll seek him, if you'll draw near to him, the Bible says he will draw near to you and there will be courage that rises up in, inside of you. And when a spirit of fear tries to penetrate and get down into you, it will be met with a much stronger force of courage that drives it out. Your preparation before the crisis will determine your performance in the crisis. We don't rise to the occasion. We fall to our level of preparation. And Jehoshaphat's preparation was such that he was courageous in the ways of the Lord. I love that. I love it. Let's move on. Number three. It says he called... He, it says that he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. Verse 4, they even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah. Here's truth number three. My preparation will directly impact or flavor my leadership and my influence. Brothers and sisters, listen. How you deal with fear affects other people. It doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone around you. Fear is like an odor. There is there's something spiritual to it that is foul. And when I'm operating out of fear... Everyone that I lead, everyone that I'm involved with, they get, they, they're tarnished by it. My kids, my spouse, my coworkers, it directly impacts and flavors my leadership and my influence. But Jehoshaphat, his odor, his influence was one of courage one of inspiration, one of encouragement. Now listen, it says, he went to his knees before the Lord and then he stood to lead. I don't have any true authority to lead, to stand, to rise until I have gone down on my knees before the Lord, until I'm under the authority of God. I don't have the authority to rise and lead anybody. There are so many people 
who are trying to lead in their own authority out of a spirit of fear. I was one of them for years as a dad and it almost destroyed my children and my family and it almost blew our marriage apart. I was so fearful as a father and it caused me to be very controlling and very angry. And this is a major area that God has been working in me. But I know this intimately. My preparation or lack of preparation, lack of cultivating that courageous walk with God will flavor and impact my leadership and my influence. If I stand with a spirit of fear to lead, I'll transfer that spirit to the people I lead. And I will end up misleading them. But if I stand with a spirit of courage, I will lead people and inspire people and give people hope. And I will raise people. I love the statement by Napoleon. He said, leaders are dealers in hope. Leaders are dealers in hope. And the leader who has drawn near to the Lord, cultivated that relationship with the Lord, has a courageous relationship with the Lord, will be a leader who is a dealer in hope. And here's what we see Jehoshaphat doing. He stands with his people. And they're together seeking help from the Lord. And it's a beautiful picture of what to do in the face of fear. Dad, are you speaking life into your family in the midst of the fearful time we're living? Mom, are you speaking life to your husband? Husband, are you speaking life to your wife? What kind of influence do you have on your family? What kind of influence do you have on your neighbors, your coworkers, your employees, your employer? I challenge you to answer that question. All right, let's move on. Number four, when I am afraid, I have two options, to become hysterical or become historical. Two options, hysterical or historical. Let me give you an example of what this means. Let me explain this. Hysteria essentially is defined as behaviors exhibiting overwhelming or unmanageable fear or emotional excess. Hysteria, of course, is a, is a spectrum. Anarchy is typically on the, on, on the far end of the spectrum. Suicide is on this side of the spectrum. But it is an emotional reaction based on what I see and feel. Hysteria is essentially an emotional reaction to what I see or feel. Becoming historical is a response based on evidence. What I know, and in this case, Jehoshaphat as the godly leader that he was, not perfect as we saw in chapter 18, or didn't see, but in chapter 18, he's not a perfect king. He failed as a king in chapter 18, repented, came back to God, and he's leading his people. But as a godly king, he's leading them by taking them on a journey back into history. And let's go on that journey together. Here's what he does. Instead of getting hysterical, he becomes historical. And he begins to recount the evidence of all that God has done in the past. 
And brothers and sisters, that's what separates those who respond well to fear, those who respond hysterically to fear or allow it to dominate their inner person. When I go back and I grab hold of the evidence that I have, both in Scripture, we have a mountain of evidence of what God has done, who He is, what His character is. The Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and for forever. So when I read this book, I get a picture of who it is that I've put my faith in. His history, his background. And so here's Jehoshaphat in verse 6, and I'm going to read 6 through verse 11. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, and he's speaking this in front of all the people, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? So he points out God's position, ruler over all the kings of the earth. Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Omnipotence, the omnipotence, the power of God. Then he begins to talk about their past and what God has done in their past. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? Let me ask you this. What are the events in your own life that you can recall and recount that demonstrate God's faithfulness in your own life? I would encourage you, write them down. Put them in a, in a binder, in a diary somewhere where when you are experiencing fear, you go back and you read. Here's what God has done. 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 If God did it then, God can do it now. I can trust him. And he recounts the past acts of God. Verse 8, they lived in the land you gave them and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying... Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and we'll cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. This is strong, people. This is Jehoshaphat locking horns with God and holding God to account for the things he's promised. This is, this is, there are so many people I talk to who have such a shallow relationship with God and I try to impress on them this. God is not afraid of you wrestling with him. The word Israel, Jacob wrestled with God and his name was changed from Jacob, deceiver, heel snatcher, manipulator, passive aggressive, to Israel. What does Israel mean? Israel means the one who wrestles with God. And that is the history of the whole nation of Israel. And that is our heritage. When we have a relationship with God, we have the ability God is not intimidated by, but actually welcomes us to grab hold of him and wrestle with him, to remind him of his promises. He loves it. It's what he calls faith. This is what it means to be courageous with God. And Jehoshaphat, in front of all of his people, he models this. God, you said you would deliver us if we cried out to you. We're holding you to it. And in the face of fear, we wrestle with God. We don't let fear pin us. We wrestle with God. I love it. This relationship with God is raw. It's real. 
It's not religious. It's not canned. It is the real deal, folks. God invites us to grab hold of him and to wrestle with him, to let us, to let him see our raw emotion. He invites us to cry out to him. Well, I'll tell you what, if I told you some of the conversations I've had with God, it'd, it'd make your hair curl. It, I mean, I've been so raw and real with God at times that it scares me. I, I expect lightning to fall. But it never has fallen, and it just draws me closer. And I just love him even more because he can handle my humanness and my doubts and my fears when I bring them to him. And I say, God, you said if I draw near to you, you will draw near to me. You said that you are near to the brokenhearted. <laughs> and I hold God's hand to the fire. And that's what Jehoshaphat is doing. He says, you said that when we're in distress, you will hear and deliver us. We're now in distress. We're holding you to your promise. <laughs> then he says in verse 10 and 11, he, he brings to, to uh, God's memory an event. And of course, God hasn't forgotten, but he's going to hold God to this as well. He says, behold, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you did not let us invade when we came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. Behold, now they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out of your possession, your land that you gave us, which you have given us as inheritance. What, what, what is he saying? The history is this. When the children of Israel were traveling from Egypt to the promised land, they had to cross a particular piece of land. It belonged to these three nations that were now gathered to wipe out Israel. And Israel said to them, in all respect, we will only stay on the main highway. We won't touch your water. We won't touch your, your, your food. We won't touch anything. If perhaps one of our sheep bolts and goes and drinks some of your water by accident, we'll even pay for that. We're not going to touch anything. We just are asking you to let us cross your land to get where we're going because to go around is a massive, massive uh, amount of mileage and we would rather go through well, these three kings, these three nations said, absolutely not. And if you try to come through, we will go to war against you and we will wipe you out. Now, Israel could have wiped them out. They knew that. But, but God had said, don't touch them. So they had compassion. They obeyed God. They didn't do anything about this threat. And they, they just took the long way around. And now, so they, they extended good for evil, and now they have evil being imposed on them again by these three kings attacking. And Jehoshaphat brings that to God's memory. Again, being just bloody honest. Just talking, dialoguing with God about the situation. Guys, I love this. This is how a relationship with God works. This is how we work through fear. I love what Winston Churchill said during World War II. He said, when you're going through hell, keep going. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. This is how we walk through things with God. We dialogue, we wrestle with him. We bring him back to his promises. We remind him that he is sovereign, that he is powerful. And of course, he doesn't need to be reminded, but it reminds us. We get historical, not hysterical. And that's called faith. That's called faith. So I want to end with this last verse. After he reminds God of this situation, he says in verse 12, 
O our God, will you not judge them? Lord, do what's right. Be just in this situation. Support us in this situation, for we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't have any power, Lord. We don't have a plan, but our eyes are on you. No power, no plan, but our eyes are on you. I want to end with just a short story. When we came back from Maui and flew back into Seattle, we flew into uh, what was considered the start of the pandemic in Seattle. And, and my wife, who is a nurse in the largest trauma center in the Pacific Northwest, knew that she was going to be faced with this whole COVID thing. And there was actually a team being formed of volunteer nurses who would be the frontline COVID team. And at this time, we didn't know much about COVID and the whole uh, COVID-19, how, how serious it was. It was being treated as the bubonic plague. Nurses were gowning up. I mean, the precautions that were being taken were extreme. And I remember we had a, a walk and we have a hill that we walk up and down and we walked up and down that hill praying and talking and discussing because she was saying to me, I feel like I need to volunteer for this team. And though she would be in the middle of it, it would affect me because it was my wife who potentially her life was on the line and potentially my life was on the line too through my wife. So it affected both of us, her predominantly, but me as well. And we walked up and down that hill considering the options that we had considering the ramifications of this decision. And at the end of the day, we both agreed she should volunteer for this team. And what was that decision based on? Being historical, getting historical. We can trust you, God. Our lives are in your hands. If we were, if, if we were to die, we would be instantly with you. Our eternity is secure. People who don't know you yet need our service. You said, Jesus, that you didn't come to, to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. And in the face of this fear, we got historical. And as a result, we came to a decision. We will trust you with our lives. And brothers and sisters, Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel came to a point after getting historical, after lifting up the greatness of God, and as this leader expanded on and painted a picture of how great God was, how trustworthy he was, the final conclusion was, we are weak, we have no plan, but our eyes are on you. No power, no plan, but our eyes are on you. And I want to encourage you to come to that same place, Lord, I have no power. I am weak. I admit it. And I have no plan. I don't know what's happening in the next hour. But my eyes are on you. My eyes are on you. I look to you. And if you come to that place, fear will not lodge in your spirit, in your soul. 
in your inner person. You will live as a courageous man or woman. No power, no plan, but our eyes are on you. And next week, we're going to find out what that stance results in, because the end of this story is ridiculous. It's incredible. Thank you.